What up, people? Swizz here. Wednesday, October 19th. We're smack in the middle of the month. This is Market Call. By the way, for you perceptive people out there, we actually changed. We tweaked our logo because Amanda Diaz is just, I mean, she's on it. She's she's gifted. She's motivated. And she's artistic. And she's all those things. And she rolls it up in a ball. And whammo, that's what comes out of it. In just literally a minute, Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting will be joining me in just a few minutes after that. Tom Sosnoff, founder and CEO of Tasty Trade, will be joining. Today's episode is brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics that are powered by tomorrow. Tasty Trade, empowering the individual investor through content, technology, and know-how. And of course, our production partners are Open Exchange. Now, Dan Nathan is in San Francisco. Last I spoke to him, he was having coffee or something. Then he was going to have another coffee. Then he was going for lunch. And then I think he was getting on a plane and coming back. I mean, that's what Dan does. He's sort of the forward front person of risk reversal media. I'm the troll that they leave in the basement. By the way, is my basement. I have the green screen behind. But that's neither here nor there. By the way, uh, for you Cleveland Guardian fans, golf season is upon you. Enjoy it. Yankees move on to Houston tonight. Carter, how are you? I'm good. I'm... uh... You know, I've had my share of coffee too, but uh, Dan uh, is obviously doing it in a nicer place than I'm doing it, at least for now. Well, I doubt that because your apartment, I loved it. I mean, what you got, that light you got going on there, very art deco, as they say. Let's take a look at what's moving because we'll start this ball rolling that way. And obviously, if you look at some individual stocks, you'll see Netflix on the top of the list. But we have some other names that are moving as well. And if we can put this fact set graphic up, it talks to exactly that, what's happening today. Decent day in energy, industrial services, uh, you know, having a difficult day in consumer discretionary. What are your thoughts here? Does it mean anything or is just more noise on what's been a very noisy couple of weeks? That's right. I mean, obviously, certain stocks moving uh, today are news related, um, an ISRG, for instance, or a Generac. Uh, but in aggregate, we have the same circumstance we've had for days and weeks. We are basically sitting at the June low. In fact, the QQQ right now is the exactly same level it was on the 16th of June. And all well, Let's take a look. Watches. Let's slide it, Earl, and put it up. I mean, the picture, as they say, is worth a thousand words, and you're right. Um, and here we are. Now, before, listen, before I, I want you to analyze this, but I will tell you full disclosure that I think it was a Friday or Monday of this week. I said, listen, to me, and I'm not suggesting I'm right, but this looked eerily reminiscent of what we saw back in the middle of June, from June 16th to, I think, the middle of August. I think the S&P rallied close to 19%, touched that trend line, which that arrow shows, that last down arrow, and then obviously we fell off a cliff. I submit that we're not in for the same magnitude of move, but the same type of move. But you know, the longer we stay down here, Carter, the, least, um, the, least bull- the less bullish I get. Well, that's just it. Times, times passing. We had a chance to bounce. In fact, you can see there when we first approached the June low about three weeks ago, we got a little bit of a bounce, but we quickly undercut it. Now we've recovered back above what would be a key level, but basically barely. And what's really important is you can see that uh, faint uh, purple uh, vertical line marking mm-hmm. the end of the year. You kind of feel at best, let's say it, it really is some year end rally that is quite often the case, you just see it all very capped and we'll just stay within these converging lines. And then, of course, there is every prospect, and it's my view, that we really don't get uh, a seasonal rally. You don't have to. And that, in fact, it gets worse. Yeah, I mean, 
I think there are a lot of people, you know, it's interesting. And I know you know this, your work speaks for itself and you take emotion out of it. And, you know, you just let, you just do your work and whatever comes from it, comes from it. You're agnostic in terms of direction, but there's so many people out there. And this is just interesting to touch on for a second. They want to be the next Mark Haynes, the next person that calls the low within a day or uh, Eliz- what's her name? Garzarelli, Elaine Garzarelli back in the day, mm-hmm. same type of thing, person that calls the highs. And listen, that happens. But if you want to build a career on the back of something like that, I think it's foolish. And I've said it all, a lot. You know, I am not going to go down that road. I'm not going to try to be the person that calls tops or bottoms. You have to let the work speak for itself. And and the truth is, it's it's more of a how would I say it's it's a fun exercise. But the managing of money and managing mm-hmm. of risk has nothing to do with today's the top, today's the bottom. It's trying to be sort of properly sized whenever possible, and also to respect risk because. Over time, the upside, if one knows what one's doing and is in the right assets, will take care of itself. But it's about controlling loss. Agreed. So let's go back to that Q's chart real quick and just to take a look. I mean, what you're effectively saying is uh, the the prior one, if we could. Yeah, that one. What you're effectively saying is the longer we stay here, the more inclined we are to break uh, to the downside. But there's still a potential chance that we were to trade higher. But, you know, that trend line, that declining trend line, obviously the levels get lower and lower. And time decay Mm -hmm. suggests that with each passing day, the rally potentially could be mitigated to a certain point. Is that accurate? Right, that's accurate. And, and just think of it this way. Forget all the lines, forget any fundamentals. Let's just say the market having sold off some 20% from that August high is, quote, cheap here, or the stocks that, that compose the queue. If something is really mispriced and cheap, it won't stay there. Capital will move into it and exploit that opportunity. Days go by and more days. Where are the buyers? It's just so the longer you spend unable to bounce, the truth is the market's speaking. It's maybe not cheap enough or maybe, hey, we're still waiting for Apple to come and Microsoft and Tesla tonight. And after those, people might want to act. But right now it's stuck. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, those oversold conditions that people will talk about when we're at lows, conversely, overbought conditions when we're highs. The longer you stay at those extremes, the more those oversold or overbought conditions get worked off. So that argument works, but over time, it has less and less value. Just something to keep in mind. SPX chart, you know, the S&P chart is another one we need to look at because this tells a little bit of a different story. Obviously, the time factor here is more, I think we're talking about a 15-year or so chart, lower left, upper right. We're right in the middle of this defined range that you showed us. But I think your work suggests that lower end of the band is absolutely in play. And that sort of lines up with what Dan and I have been talking about in terms of levels, you know, anywhere from 3,400, potentially the overshoot down to 3,200. Right. And so, you know, drawing lines to some extent is subjective, of course, just as deciding valuation on a fundamental basis is subjective. But the lines that are drawn are mathematically parallel. So you see Mm -hmm. the channel in which the S&P has been ascending since its financial crisis low. And we know that it had a mirror image low touching the lower band uh, in 2020 on the COVID low. And we also know that coming off of COVID, whether it's government induced stimulus or whatnot, we were so strong that we went back to the upper band and actually blew out through the top. And at that moment in late 21, many people were making the case the valuation was as bad as the dot-com. Either way, here we are now back, not only to the midpoint, but into the lower half. And the question is, and uh, I think so, 
Are we going lower? Yes. And then how much lower? Are we going to go all the way to the bottom of the lower band? And it's all about the rate at which you do it that determines the level. Were we to go there tomorrow, not going to happen, that would be like 2850. Mm -hmm. Were you to drift down there, as we've been doing for now 10 months, and continue to weaken in 2023, then it starts to be more like the 3200 level. That's exactly right. Now, let me ask you this question. So, again, this chart goes back to 07, but it really starts in earnest in the beginning of 08-ish. So, we spent a dozen or so years in the upper end of that band. Um, Now that we seemingly are breaking it, is there a chance, in other words... Does that time work on the back end of it? Can we look at a decade worth of an uptrend market? I mean, this is a very long-term bullish trend, but staying in the lower end of that band, does that make sense? Absolutely. So let's say we were to continue what's been going on since Jan 4 and sell off and weaken and deteriorate, and we were to get to the lower band, and then we were to start climbing, and that made a bear market low. Mm -hmm. But we're climbing at a rate that's not enough to get it out of the lower band and that it ascends within the lower band, just as it was ascending within the upper band from, to your point, 2010 to 2018-19. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, and that's how I would look at this. You know, long-term bull trend is still clearly intact. We've done nothing to break that. I mean, we're still in a, basically a 14-year bull market if you really look at it through the lens of this chart. But again, through that middle line or through that, what's basically the line of demarcation from that upper and lower band, we could spend a decade or so in an uptrend, in a lower band, it's not going to get us really where we need to be in order to get this market on stable footing. It's just something to keep in mind. It's interesting, you know, the context of a long-term bull market, it doesn't mean things are going to get great. It's just, it visually, I think this does a lot of justice to our viewers. So I appreciate you bringing this up. One of the sectors, Carter, we've looked at and a lot of different opinions on this one, but there's no denying, I don't think, that the stock's have performed well on a lousy tape and under a commodity that's been under pressure. The XLE is something that you've taken a look at here. You brought a couple charts with you. That's right. Well, so traditionally, if you think about it, energy was a defensive sector. And to some extent, I think that's less the case. But there was a long period of time where so-called Armageddon stock was excellent, right? That if everything went really bad, that is one of the most defensive, right up there with the staples. Uh, type business. In any event, the XLE chart you see there is, uh, well, the lines draw themselves. The trend mm-hmm. line's clear. The arrows annotate where the checkbacks are, and you see the, the robust bounces off trend. And so uh, that's basically from the autumn of 2020 to where we are now, the autumn of 2022. The question is here and now, and I have a uh, an up-close-and-personal chart, the next one. It's very short-term, but it, mm-hmm. it basically what I think uh, tells a picture. We, we know we had the June, uh, July sort of bottom, and whether you call it a head and shoulders or not, does not matter. And we have this same formation again, and I've, um, you know, to sort of help the eye, anyone's eye, my own eye, I've drawn those purple arrows identically to the way the green arrows indeed did play out. And so I think energy makes it back to the high as a sector. But even this, We know we're nowhere near that May high. Still room to run, but XLE is making new relative highs to Mm -hmm. the SPY right now. Speak to pattern recognition. And, you know, you've drawn the lines and you've drawn, obviously, everything is here. Your eye sees that before you even draw it. So for people watching this and saying, geez, I wish I could. Listen, obviously, they could could 
be a member of your of, of worth charting without question. But some people like to do things on their own. How do you train yourself to see something like this? I know that's a rather obscure question, but I see it as well. But for people that don't do this for a living, it's very hard to sort of connect the dots. Well, and also, again, a key to this all is it's subjective. Someone, let's do this as an exercise. Let's remove all the color. And so now we're just back to the XLE price mm-hmm. action. And someone I sees the following. They did a red sort of top hat over the May-June high. And then they did another red one over the August high. And they did another one over this current level and saying we have a well-defined series of lower highs and then drew a big red down arrow. At, but that's what makes a market. What seems fairly symmetrical and repeating is the minor head and shoulders bottom that have been annotated there in purple. But again, it's very much in the eye of the practitioner. Different people, uh, different uh, practitioners could see a very different thing in this chart. Yeah, and that's when I marry your work and then I say, okay, what's going on in the world? Like, So I look at it through an additional lens of, okay, I I understand the crude oil is going from 135-ish or so down to the 70s, rallied back above 90, back into the mid eight, mid 80s or so. We have some volatility at this price. So the commodity is not helping you. But in the context of a broader market that has not done particularly well, to your point about relative strength, these energy stocks have done extraordinarily well. I've mentioned a number of times that Exxon, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, the big three, now approaching a trillion dollars in market cap for collective and stocks that are all within literally a whisper of their all-time high. That's telling a different story. So I say, okay, that makes sense. The commodity's doing nothing. The market's obviously been under pressure, but this XLE is performing well. So what could potentially happen if the commodity catches a bid and if the market finds stable ground, which, you know, when I couple that with the work that you just do, I say, you know what, this XLE trade sets up really well. I think so. And also there's this, we're always, all of us looking at current price juxtaposed Mm -hmm. against past price. So we're like, oh gosh, oil is down so much because it was 130 a barrel post-Ukraine. Let's say we just whited that out. Forget the fact Mm -hmm. that it surged from essentially 90 to 130 in six sessions. What's the main takeaway? Crude is sitting here, call it 80, 90 a barrel, whatever you want to call it. Energy stocks, print money if crude stays here. That's right. That's that's exactly right. Tim Seymour made that point last time on Fast Money. And it's something we've been trying to point out as well. I think a lot of people find themselves scratching their head is why are these energy stocks doing so well when the commodity really hasn't? But to your point, I mean, fundamentals intact here at this current price point. And I do believe somebody upgraded Exxon today. I don't know who I should have it in front of me. I don't. But they think there's another 30 percent to the upside in the stock, just something to keep in mind. So I think more and more people are coming around to the notion that, you know what, despite the commodity sort of going sideways, there there's real value in a lot of these names. So I'm glad you brought that XLE chart because I happen to agree with you. Netflix, you nailed this one. Let's take a look at these headlines. I think Reed Hastings figured it out once again. Bulls are back in the stock. Now, listen, this was a $700 stock a year or so ago. Again, not that that matters. I just point that out for context. So a stock that got absolutely eviscerated. I think it was down 65% at one point in its trough this spring when it was at a 175, 180 handle. But one thing we pointed out in the spring, Carter, again, going back to the fundamentals, for the first time since I remember, maybe ever, you can make a very compelling case for Netflix on valuation. The stock bottomed for a couple months, seemingly found its footing, did well in an environment where the broader market was selling off. To me, that's the first tell. But then these unfilled gaps to the upside, and let's take a look at the charts because 
That to me was the story. And this is something you brought. I know last week you brought it the last couple of weeks. You thought we could see this stock rally. We're seeing it now. Uh, the first gap fill probably comes in around three and a quarter ish, although I don't have it exactly in front of me, but you can see the red line. Right. There's a second chart. Let's start with that one. Um, and what you'll see here is so we have the downtrend well defined and we news related gapped above. Right. So mm-hmm. the downtrend is broken to the upside, a positive thing. Then it gets to the question of, well, how high can it go? The second chart tries to make that point, which is the first chart, which is we're back to now into the gap, right? Free and clear. We're really, in a way, free to advance all the way to where the overhead supply comes into play. Now, that is a long way from here. That's getting up into the 320, Mm -hmm. 330 level. And that's not going to happen overnight. My own hunch is, I guess I would, because this is the hardest thing. Well, let me say this. This is very important, actually. Losers, we know what to do. You get the hell out. If you're in a bad job, a bad relationship, a bad stock, it's usually right to move along. Now, the harder, more nuanced thing is what to do with the winner. Let's say we sell the whole thing right here, and then it goes to 330. That's a disaster. We were here, Mm -hmm. present at creation, and we gave it up. Alternatively, let's say we say, let's stay, and it falls back, market gets worse, and it fills in the gap. We had all these profits and we watched them evaporate. No one knows the answer to this question. And so the only thing you can do is one of three things. Hedge, write some Mm -hmm. calls, or two, trim, or three, sell it all. But just staying blindly long while you can do that doesn't seem to be prudent in a tape like this. My own hunch is to trim a little bit and or write calls, reduce exposure in some way. So what you just said is one of the things that I've been saying for years, and I know this will resonate with you, and I hope it resonates with the audience. Trade the stock. Don't let the stock trade you. Or trade the security, trade the commodity. Don't let the commodity trade you. And what does that mean? So you've pointed out this trade for a number of weeks. And let's just say you were fortunate enough to get in Netflix within the last month or so at much lower levels. So here we are. You got the event you were waiting for. Here it is. If you do nothing today, That's a mistake. What you should be doing today is exactly what Carter said. I would submit you sell out a quarter of your position, a third of your position, maybe a half of your position, because then that gives you flexibility. If it goes back and fills in the gap to the downside, but you're still bullish on the name, you can buy that portion back. If it continues to go higher, you're still long a portion. If you do nothing here and the stock goes down, what you will wind up saying to yourself inevitably is, well, shucks. I can't sell it here. It was just $20 higher a week ago, and then you become paralyzed. So to Carter's point, trade the stock. Don't let the stock trade you. Did I summarize that properly? I think so. I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, it's so hard. We, But the point I was trying to make, and this is really what you're talking about, is that winners are harder to cope with than losers. Mm-hmm. Because if you're disciplined, losers, you got to kick them out, take measures, control loss. What to do with a winner is the is so hard. Any business, you know, think about businesses or a nightclub and that being hot and then they sell it at the peak or you ride it all the way back down or a great acting career and you become an aging actor and no one wants to hire you. Or you go out at the top as a fighter, the, uh, boxer. The, it's so hard to know what to do when you're on top, when you're winning at a good trade. Usually when it really looks good on the P&L, you're like, eh, let me pull this back a little bit. Yeah. Now, look, it's t- everybody's. I don't care how long you've been doing this. If you've just started or been doing it for 40 years, 
I think that's the most difficult part. And I'll just say before we go to Bitcoin, this Mark Fisher in my world, the commodities world, he's a legend in my world. And he'll get up in front and talk to people and say, you know, most people are right 50% of the time, yet still figure out a way to lose money. Mark will tell you he's right maybe 25% of the time, but he makes money because to your point, when he's wrong, he knows immediately he gets out. So he can be wrong three, four, five times in a row, out, out, out. When he realizes he's got something that's correct, that's when he levers and that's when he really starts to let the trade work for him. And it's a mindset and we're not wired that way. And I'm not suggesting, you know, this is something you really have to think about and do over and over again, because as human beings, the instinct when you have something right is to immediately get out of it. Oh my God, I can't believe it. And the instinct when you're wrong about something is not being able to admit it and then let your ego get in the way and just ride it down and then play the game. Geez, get me back to even and I swear I'll never do it again. It's a really tough thing. I mean, we should probably do a seminar on just market psychology at some point. But uh, proper, well, time does not prohibit us to do it today, but we will. Bitcoin. And I've said this a number of times, Carter. This can't get out of its own way, despite the fact that, you know, we've seen market rallies over the last couple of weeks predicated on potentially the Fed pivoting. We saw the Bank of England flinch a couple of weeks ago. All these things should have been, in my opinion, extraordinarily bullish for Bitcoin, and it's not. And it's just literally been sideways to lower for the last effectively month, month and a half. I think you think there's another leg to the downside here. Yeah, I put the red arrow there, and that is that is sort of the conclusion. But I think the key thing is that, you know, the expression, run, we're running out of runway. You can't, because to stay within those converging trend lines, you'd have to stop trading, right? Something's got to give. And now it's make your bets. I think a lot of people are thinking it will bounce, and plenty of others will thinking it will break. It's, I think this is no different than the ARC uh, mutual fund, all the stuff that's really bombed out. I just don't think it's over. I think you get real down legs here. Certainly looks that way. Well, Carter, obviously, Wednesday is Carter Day. Thanks for joining us. Put up that Carter Worth slide because this is important. I love this is my favorite, almost my favorite thing to say. Old fashioned technical analysis, nothing slick. Just Carter being his badass self. I put that part in. It's actually just charts, but you get my drift. Thanks, CB Dubs. Thanks. We'll see you back on Monday. Let's bring in Tom Sosnoff. Tom, obviously, we've seen some since we last spoke last Wednesday. I mean, the volatility in the market, I don't want to say historic, but it's been extraordinarily interesting. I know you've been trading it aggressively. You know, I thought we had some legs in this move to the upside. And right as we're speaking right now, I see the market giving a lot of it back. Just sort of give me what you've been looking at over the last week or so since we last spoke. Well, I wish I knew. Um, you know, it's been, like you said, it's been crazy volatile. We've had moves that have, on a daily basis, pretty much exceeded two times the expected move, um, which means that, uh, you know, expected move is basically what implied volatility tells us. And, and what's actually happened is the realized move, the actual move, has been, you know, two times what we've expected almost every single day. So that's kind of crazy volatility. You see it every once in a while, but you don't usually see it, you know, as consistently as we've seen it over the last week. So, you know, I, I mean, I I think it's been, you know, it's been a crazy trader's market. The vol hasn't come in much at all. And um, uh, this is what you get at 31% implied volatility in the S&Ps. Um, you guys were just talking about, 
you know, Bitcoin, this is what you used to get in Bitcoin when you had, you know, 100, 100, 110, 120% volatility. Um, that volatility has died now in, in the digital assets, and it's all going over to the stock market. And uh, you're kind of seeing something, you know, we don't get to see very often, but it's kind of cool when it happens. Yeah. So Anthony Rizzo spent a lot of time in Chicago. I think you're a Cub fan. Maybe what doesn't matter, but you, you're familiar with the guy. I mentioned him because, you know, he obviously when he steps up to the plate, he has one approach. He gets two strikes on him. And you'll see even Anthony Rizzo chokes up. And my point is there are certain situations where you have to change your approach to be successful. Do you find yourself in this situation? In other words, do you find yourself choking up or taking different duration risks? Can you speak to that? Because clearly the world's a little bit different uh, than it was even yeah. just a month or so ago. So first of all, it is painful for me as a Cubs fan to listen to a Yankees fan talk about Anthony Rizzo like he's your that. property. No, no. Where like, did I say? Where did you, Tom? Where did you feel hear me like say we he's raised him? He's we playing feel like Bronx. we raised him. Yankee yeah. fans... Yankee fans definitely feel like they own Rizzo and we feel like we raised him. We hand fed him as a, yeah. as an infant and we raised the kid. Um, we showed him nothing but love. And uh, I even have, I think uh, two Rizzo balls, a Rizzo Jersey, you know, like, like it was um, we knew you guys would love him and uh, you know, he's the consummate pro, but regardless, um, uh this is the okay so th this is where a lot of people get confused about trading mm -hmm. the, what, what what never changes are the strategies what never changes are the underlines what what does change is the way people um interpret what's happening and the easiest thing to do in markets like this that are highly volatile the easiest thing to do is to go crawl in a you know go crawl into a corner and and not do anything um, what's recommended if you do get nervous at all is just to, you know, just keep your size in check. But the reality of high volatility moves like this is that outlier moves are almost non-existent. So I know that's going to sound crazy, but what happens in, in really high IV moves where implied volatility right now is about two times what it kind of is historically is that the fat tails or the crazy outlier moves that normally scare the living shit out of everybody when That's it right. comes to trading, those essentially disappear in periods of high volatility. You get crazy intraday moves, but you don't get the big outlier moves. So there is there is on paper, your max loss risk is actually less in these markets now than it would be in markets with low implied volatility. Now, that said, if these markets do make you nervous, you either get a little bit smaller. Don't don't get out of the markets under any circumstances because there's way more opportunity today than there is in, in in dull markets. But if you're if you're a little nervous, either widen your strikes or or if you're not trading options, you're using futures or underlying. Just keep your size in check. It's all about trade size. That's that's the entire game. And I heard you guys talking about you know winners before, and and I'm not going to argue with anything that that that. Um, you or Carter went back and forth on. All I'm going to say is that one of the things in in highly volatile markets like this is manage the trades and manage the winners consistently. Like, don't feel like you have to maximize everything, and don't feel like you have to ever stop yourself out. That those mm -hmm. those two are the biggest mistakes people make. Just 
manage the trades. So like maybe it's 25% of what you expect to make. Maybe it's 50% of expected move. Like don't take your stuff for like one or two ticks or anything like that, or one or two bucks, whatever it is, but manage your trades. If you manage your trades and keep your size in check, you'll be fine. Yeah, it's. I think we're. I, I do think we're saying pretty much the same thing. I'm. You oh, know, no, there no. Are variations totally are. to it. We but totally are. Totally. Now are. you said we talked about this last week, and this is a. I understand what you're saying in terms of, in high vol markets, you've effectively taken the tail risk out, which is so counterintuitive. But if you think exactly. about it, that's exactly. exactly what happens. Like you've taken all the either side of that bell curve out, and now you're playing in the middle of it. And to a certain extent, that actually makes the environment easier to navigate which is really a hard thing to wrap your head around but but i totally understand but to your point that's the way your mind has to think and it's so counterintuitive to people we have a question from an audience member i'm looking down so i apologize but i'm reading does tom think that the option market growth over the past two years which has been extraordinary by the way is adding to the volatility we're seeing in the market um I, I think the amount of activity in general, because of the mass, I don't think it's the option growth that adds to the volatility. What option, what the option growth has done is it's made the playing field much more level and it's made the markets more efficient. You see, the problem that we've had, and, and it's a great question that person asked, but the problem that we've had in the last decade or almost two decades is that as stock prices have got so expensive, you know, the market's gone up, you know, what, however many, four or 500%, whatever it is. And as the market's had this massive rally over the last two decades, stock prices have got crazy expensive, which means trading and investing has become capital inefficient. So what options have done is they've made, they've brought efficiency, capital efficiency back to individual investors and to more than just individual investors. So the growth of the option space is really the growth of capital efficiency. It means that people that don't have a lot of capital can play a $300 stock like Tesla, can play, you know, um, you know, uh, depending on whatever name you want to use, but lots of stocks in the 100, 200, 300, and $400 range, anybody can play those stocks for a limited amount of capital, which means the participation levels in the markets are extraordinary compared to what they used to be. We used to, at Goldman, when I was there, there was a saying called, take a partner. And what that means is, if you have an idea, I want to be long XYZ, I want to be long gold, short gold, long crew, whatever it is, you have that idea. And what we do as human beings, Tom, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. If I'm bullish in crude oil, let's just say, I will look to find everything that reinforces that dogma, that belief. So I will find everything possible that would make, make me continue to be bullish and sort of cement and galvanize that view. That's fine. That's human nature. Now, if I were to go to the guy sitting three or four, the gal sitting four people away who have not looked at crude at oil and say, hey, Jenny, or hey, Tom, I'm thinking about being long crude. That's a fresh set of eyes looking at something. They have no dog in the race. So they will point out some of the things that you might not see. I mentioned that because you and Tony talk about exactly that, discussing views, having conversations about things. Can you discuss the importance of that? Because I really think, especially with the community that you've built at Tasty Trade, is vitally important. When you're part of a community, and obviously the people that watch Market Call, I think people that watch Fast Money, to a certain extent, people that listen to on the tape, you know, we've created a bit of a community. And I know people interact, whether they interact over emails with one another or on Twitter with one another. This gives you an opportunity to bounce ideas and to talk about things that you might not be able to do 
when you're by yourself. So community is really important. And I know Tony and Tom do it at Tasty, and I know they've built a community around that. So I don't know if we're going to be able to get Tom back, but I just wanted to mention that the importance of getting another set of eyes on a trade and having other people look at things. Because again, it's human nature that if you're bullish in something, if you're bearish in something, what you'll wind up doing is just trying to find the things that reinforce your belief system. And then you're sort of off to your, you know, your own devices. When if you bring somebody else in, listen, that person might reinforce those beliefs and they might basically say and see everything that you see, which is great. But they also might see something that you didn't see, might be something, see something that you missed. By the way, did you know that this company's reporting earnings that might have an impact? Or did you know that this uh, meeting is taking place or this conference that might take it into consideration? So bringing another set of eyes on Tom is really important. So I think you're back. Should be back you on. heard the question. I'd love to hear your input on that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was, <laughs> I don't know what happened. My microphone got disconnected. Um, so, so I'm the, I, I feel like I'm the ultimate contrarian who's who's also spent his entire career standing around with other traders and just, you know, hanging out with um, my, every every friend I have is a is a full time trader. And I feel like we talk about trading nonstop, but we love fading each other. So like I'll listen to Tony or I'll listen to you or Dan or anybody else. And and the first thing that goes through my head is is not what you just said, like, hey, I'm looking for confirmation. I'm actually looking for you. I want you to be on the other side. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm looking, you know, I, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I think of myself almost as if I'm taking the other side of any discussion or trade that we're talking about. Because I believe that with the market randomness, and I believe that that really nobody does know anything. Mm -hmm. And so I look at opportunity very differently than most people look at opportunity. And so I'm not necessarily looking for, for confirmation. I'm looking for that collaboration mm -hmm. just so that the topics out there, I, I call it engagement rather than confirmation. So I love the engagement of all the conversations, of all the discussions, of all the nonstop bullshit about everything, but because that's what gets me excited and that's what gets me fully engaged. I don't need the confirmation though to make the trade. No, and that's, you know, I'm not, it, well, yeah, fair enough. And I know exactly what you're saying. But what I'm saying confirmation is more so exactly to your point, bringing that other set of eyes might be that counter, might point out something that you missed or that you're choosing not to see. And again, that dialogue is really important. My, my point is this. I think it's really difficult to do this. I think it's even more difficult to do it in a vacuum if you're not part of a community. But I think to a certain extent, we're saying the same thing. There's yeah, something that I, 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 saw, I agree with that. I yeah. agree with that. There's something I saw on, you know, I follow you guys, obviously, and I really enjoy the conversations you have. Correlations is something that you brought up, I think, over the last day or so in terms of what you're looking for. Can you speak to the, the importance of or lack thereof of correlations and how you sort of trade those things? In bear markets like we're in right now, everything becomes highly correlated, which is the scariest thing about bear markets. People... Um, in bull markets, there's a lot of geniuses because bull markets create geniuses because they create the false impression that there is this, that people have an uncanny ability to pick stocks and things like that. Bear markets bring everybody back to reality because everything moves to a correlation essentially of one, which means it doesn't matter. You can't escape it, whether it's a Chinese stock, a tech stock, whether it's a, you know, whatever the sector is, it could even be a commodity. 
everything gets buried. It doesn't matter if it's an asset, it gets buried. And therefore, all correlations go to one. But most markets, you know, only about 15% of the markets are very one-dimensional, meaning like 15% of the markets are in some kind of an uptrend, 15% of the markets over time are in a downtrend. That means that essentially 65 to 70% of the time, markets live in this in this um, two-dimensional space where it's it's kind of a range. And inside of that range, you do best as an individual investor if you can get your portfolio down to a correlation of under 0.3. So what that means is that you're somewhere wrapped around zero to a negative three to a positive three, as opposed to, or, or it's actually it's it's actually 0.3, as opposed to getting to one, negative one or positive one. What that, what that really means is to mix up your portfolio so that you have a combination, like for example, currencies right now have a correlation of zero to stocks. Um, uh, when you look at bonds, they have a correlation of 0.2 to stocks. So those are things like that have, when, when bonds move one direction, stocks have nothing to do with that. They might move the same direction, but they have no historical attachment to that direction. So if you want to reduce your overall risk, obviously diversifying product and diversifying strategy is great. But if you're non-correlated or if your positions are uncorrelated, it helps lower the standard deviation of risk. It, hope, it helps to lower the volatility of your P&L dramatically. So we suggest that people really focus on choosing things that are non-correlated, like crude oil is not that correlated with stocks. Bonds are not correlated. Currencies, like I mentioned, different commodities are. And then you get into different stock sectors and things like that, where the correlation is a lot lot it's a lot lower. Like you're not trading just you know S&Ps, NASDAQ, and Russell, let's say. And so all that stuff's really important to a successful portfolio. Yeah, and that sort of dovetails what Carter and I were talking about in terms of the XLE, how there's some bit of a disconnect between the underlying commodity and the equities. I mean, again, correlations take all shapes and forms. Many months ago, and it's a couple months ago now that we started doing this, When te- this is pre-split. When Tesla was a $900 stock, I remember because I pretty much remember everything. You talked about a stock you loved to trade, but at 900 you had no edge effectively. You know, it was sort of middle of the range. Well, now post-split, you're talking about a stock that would effectively be about $660 reports earnings today. I'm not asking you how you're trading it, but just thoughts around Tesla in earnings. Well, you know, Tesla is, um, uh, I think this market's been kind of really waiting for these Tesla earnings in a big way. And you're right. The stock has come down. You know, it's, it's outperformed a lot of the other stocks this year. I mean, on a relative basis, I mean, it's not down as much as everything else, but Tesla still has had a pretty big move, you know, post-split from just over 300 to just over 200. Um, and so we're playing Tesla. They're goosing up the premium a little bit right now as the as the day wears on. Stock's almost unchanged, but they've, they've pumped mm-hmm. a lot of juice into the options today. Um, we're playing it in a very kind of typical fashion for us. We're going we're gonna to lean a tiny bit long, via via our, our will be short some puts that are bigger than the calls that were short. If I look at Tesla down at these levels right here, I kind of feel that the outlier risk, if there is some, could be to the upside, not to the downside. So I'm looking in the neighborhood of something around the 165, 175 on the put side and the 270 to 280 on the call side, like that kind of a strangle. But I got to tell you, guy, I don't love it because you're not even outside two times the expected move. I actually believe that Tesla will be a better trade tomorrow post earnings 
Mm-hmm. And and I'm not suggesting that the earnings are good, it's going to go down. I'm not looking for a reversal. Or if the earnings are bad, it's going to go up. But I do think it's going to be a better post-earnings trade tomorrow, um, opportunity-wise. I think right now the premium's just not crazy rich enough for me to do too much in Tesla this afternoon. And so yeah, far, take- earnings, by the way, have not been that good a trade to start off this, you know, start off this earnings season. It, it's been a tough one. Yeah, without listen, you're not getting as we talk about this all the time with you, Tom. You're not getting paid enough to take the commensurate risk associated with it. So I'm with you, and I think you're right. I mean, if you go back and look over the last couple quarters, the real play has been two days after, three days after in terms of the move. So this is one of those things where I think you can sit and watch, see what happens, and I think you have a much better picture uh, over the next couple of trading days. Tom, thanks a lot. You got to te- check out Tom Tasty TastyTrade.com. As I said earlier, if you're looking for a community of traders, I think theirs as, is as good, if not better, than anybody else's all day long. People that are engaged, that love this, and quite frankly, want to help and are willing to help. And follow Tasty Trade on Twitter at Tasty Trade. Folks, obviously, thanks for joining me. I want to thank the great Carter Braxton Worth. Obviously, thank you, Tom Sosnoff. I want to thank our sponsors, FactSet, Tasty Trade. I want to thank Open Exchange. And a reminder, Monday, October 24th. By then, the Yankees and the Astros probably would have played around four games by then, which is nuts. And we'll have a conversation. Anyway, at noon Eastern time, noon Eastern time, not one noon, Dan Nathan and I will be doing a market call live on Sirius XM. No video, but if you want to be part of the show, and I encourage you, to be part of the show. Write this number down. I'll put it out on the Twitter too. 844-942-7866. I'm telling you now, you can ask me whatever you want, but I'm also telling you, I'm going to answer it honestly. It's going to be a fun hour, guaranteed. Later, people.